So I'm a big fan of, of soccer. I love watching the World Cup. And I know that uh, in soccer, the most dangerous score that you can have, the most dangerous lead that a team can have at halftime is 2-0. 2-0. That's kind of an odd number, right? But they say uh, at halftime, by the way, if you don't know anything about soccer, there's two halves, uh, 45 minutes, 45 minutes, and in the middle, you get a break. You kind of get to um, kind of regroup and come up with a different strategy. But at halftime, if the teams are tied, then there's still this level of intensity. You want to make sure that you come out with a bang because, you know, the goal is still tied. You know, you have no idea who's going to win the game. If you are leading with one goal, then you know that you are in a good position at the same time. You don't feel comfortable with that lead. And so teams normally, if it's a 1-0 game, they would come out still with that same intensity to make sure that they score another goal so that they have a comfortable lead. But a lot of people say when the score is 2-0, uh, the, the team that is up normally thinks, okay, this, this game is a wrap. Like, we, we got this. Uh, all we have to do is just run out the clock. So what happens is the winning team becomes really complacent. They feel really comfortable about their lead, about their position. And so instead of trying to score more goals, instead of sticking with what was working in the first half, they change up their strategy. They put in more defenders. Uh, they would be... Uh, passive, more defensive, and all they want to do is play safe. They just want to keep this lead. And what experts say is that a dangerous strategy because you're moving away from the strategy that got you two goals in the first place. So this team who is up 2-0 in the second half, instead of playing to win the game, they begin to play not to lose. They lose the say, that intensity that they had in the first half. They, they leave the door open for the other team to make a comeback. And you see this not just in soccer, but in football, American football, and, and also um, basketball as well, where people are just trying to run out the clock. But it's not just in sports. I think one of the reasons why we have churches and Christians who are struggling mightily um, in this day and age, even though we have all the technologies that we can ever ask for, we have basically every Christian sermon on the internet. We have access to churches, not just physically, but online. That, that, that we have resources in abundance in which we can utilize for God's kingdom. I think the reason why many churches and many Christians are struggling is because we have the wrong approach, that we have the wrong mentality. Many Christians are not living to win. Many Christians are simply living not to lose. Instead of being excited for the Great Commission, for the glory of God, being active in sharing their faith, being active in, in participating in the work of the ministry, being part of the local church, what a lot of people would do is, is this. I just want to be involved enough so that God doesn't get mad at me. So, so I can enjoy what I have in my life at the same time, no, I don't upset God that he, so that he wouldn't take away anything from my life. A lot of Christians are not playing or living to win. A lot of us are actually living not to lose. And what happens is when you do that, in your Christian walk, you lose your drive, you lose your aggression, you lose your focus. All you're trying to do is just run, out of the, run, run the clock out until you hit eternity. You're saying, I'm ready for heaven. Like, at this point, I'm just going to take the, my foot off the pedal and, and go cruise control. 
A lot of Christians are living in such a way. A lot of churches are living in such a way. They're not pursuing this life where they're exalting Christ in every possible way. Rather, they're just living a mediocre Christian life. Uh, The goal of Christian marriage is no longer exalting Jesus. It's doing enough so that you don't get a divorce. Christian parenting, the goal is not raising your children to fear the Lord, to to fill them with with God's wisdom and discernment. It's, it's to raise them just as a decent human being so that other people would not look down on them. Like, a lot of Christians are just simply trying to avoid the biggest moral failure while losing in those small battles on a daily basis. At our workplace, a lot of times, we try to balance work and God rather than honoring God with our work. We try to balance our studies with God rather than honoring God with our studies. Do you see that a lot of times we try to balance things, and when we're trying to balance things, we're trying to get the best of two worlds, and what we're actually pursuing is, is Christianity that is pretty mediocre. And Paul, as he's closing his letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, as he is wrapping this, this section up, he is giving a series of commands. There's five commands in total, but if you kind of boil this down, um, it's really one simple idea. He's telling Timothy, now that you know all the secrets of how to lead a church in light of the gospel, how to, how to, to pastor a church that is rooted in truth, that, that loves um, godliness, now that you know all these things, remember, live to win instead of living to not lose. Have that winning mentality. Live in this winning way. How can we have victory on a daily basis? Because a lot of us as Christians, we feel so defeated on a day-to-day basis. We feel like we're not good enough. We're not doing enough. There's a lack of sense of winning and victory in our life. And today's passage tells us how we can embrace this winning way of God. I just want to highlight three things from the text. Number one is this. Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember who you are in Jesus Christ. If you want to live a life that is about winning, then remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. It says this, but as for you, O man of God. Now, if you know the context, Paul, right before this section, he described what it looks like to be, uh, to, to be false teachers, their characters, their motivations. He was talking about all these false t- teachers who were hindering the local church, who were dividing the local church. And now, turning back to Timothy, he says, now that you see the nature and the motives of this, these false teachers, here's what you ought to do. But as for you... But it's interesting, instead of using the word Timothy, he says, Oh, man of God. And that's a big deal. Oh, man of God. That is a title that is only used twice in the New Testament. And immediately, that would have grabbed Timothy's attention. Because in the Old Testament, when you are called a man of God, you are someone who is called by God, who is given authority by God to lead God's people, to do great things for God. It was a big deal that you had that title, man of God. Moses was called at the end of his life, not in the beginning of his life, the end of his life. He was finally called the man of God after leading God's people out of Egypt. David was called the man of God, not when he was alive, but later when he was dead. Samuel was called man of God. Elijah, who went up against 450 prophets of Baal, who brought fire from, down from heaven, like he was called the man of God. Like All these great people, men of faith, 
They were called the man of God. And out of nowhere, as Paul is addressing Timothy at the end of his letter, he says, Timothy, oh man of God. You can just imagine Timothy trying to wrap his brain around this term. Like, why in the world would Paul call me man of God? And Paul is simply reminding Timothy that that you're not just called to be a decent pastor. You're not just called to be a good Christian. But understand, you are called by the living God. That you have a charge, that you are given this God, given authority, that that you have a mission to accomplish, that your call is to lead people to God for his glory. And so, man of God, step up. That's what he's saying. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember who you serve. God calls you. You have his authority. So do his Will. And so you can just picture Timothy being stunned at this. But, but I said that this phrase appears twice in the New Testament, once here, and the other time is in 2 Timothy 3. And this is where things get really, really interesting. It says this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a passage that we know very well. All scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training for righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. As Timothy is pondering upon this title, thinking, why in the world would I be the man of God? Now what God says is this, anyone who has God's word, you have the potential to be equipped for every good work, to be complete and be a man or woman of God. So this invitation to be the man of God is now extended to all Christians. And it makes complete sense if you think about Matthew 28, the Great Commission, when Jesus called his disciples and he said, all heaven and on earth, the authority is given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them all that I've commanded you, and remember that I am with you to the end of the ages. What Jesus does for the disciples is says, hey, I called you, I'm sending you out, I give you my authority, and I want you to lead other people to me. I want you to live for my glory. And so every Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, remember that you're not just another person in the church. You are men and women of God. That that is your calling. And it's it's, it's the big calling. But it reminds us that we have a mission, that we have a purpose that is greater than ourselves, that our life is not just about enjoying life and consuming things in life, but we have a higher calling that is given by our Lord Jesus Christ. So I don't know what might be robbing your confidence today as you are pursuing Jesus. Maybe some of you might feel inadequate based on your shortcomings, based on your past. Maybe you feel like you don't, you're not equipped enough, you don't know enough to do God's work. What the Word of God says is this. If you are a Christian, you are called to be a man of God. That is simply who you are, your identity in Jesus Christ, understand your role. You're not a bench warmer, but you are actively on the field, engaged in the battle for Jesus Christ. Remember that you are in Christ. Number two, if we want to have this winning way in our life, remember to stay aggressive. Remember to stay aggressive. It says in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So two commands. Flee and then pursue. So both these of these commands have to do with running. 
Flee is run away. Pursue is run towards. So it's this aggressive approach to life. Flee from these things. So what are these things? Uh, Paul is alluding to what he just described about the false teachers, how they desire to be wealthy, how they have this love for godliness, not because they think it's awesome, but because they want it to be a gain for them. They, they, they want worldly recognition. That's why they're adding all this stuff to Scripture and trying to boast that they know more than other people. They're, they're, they're moving, moving away from Jesus, from the sound doctrines, because they want to be elevated in a position where they're recognized as, as people who, who know the Bible better than others. They're desiring worldly gain. They're desiring um, all these things that the world has to offer. And, and in light of that, Paul tells Timothy, flee from these things. In other words, simply flee from people who are pursuing the things that the world has to offer. Run away from worldliness. Stay aggressive. A passive Christian would draw a line in the sand. They would call one side the world, the other side God's kingdom. And they would try to stay on the edge of this line. And they would say to themselves, as long as I stay on this side, as long as I don't cross that line, I'll be okay. So how can I enjoy my life while staying on the edge without falling? That's what a passive Christian would do. The Bible says an active Christian, instead of living on the border, actually runs to God, run, runs away, run away from, from what is ungodly. They, they recognize that there is danger, and, and they flee from it. And I'm, I'm reminded of the story in, in Genesis 39 with, with Joseph, who, who was a man with God's favor, and, and he was tempted in so many different ways by Potiphar's wife on a daily basis. The, the, this, this lady is trying to seduce um, Joseph, telling him, come lie with me. And the Bible says that Joseph wouldn't even, even be with her in the same place. And when Potiphar's wife tried to approach Joseph, it says, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And so we see that, that the response that we ought to have to sin is not having a dialogue like Eve did. It's not trying to convince yourself in that situation. It's, it's running away. You flee. Now, I, I love hiking. Sometimes I'll take uh, Timothy to Great Falls, uh, the Billy Gold Trail. I, I love it. Just imagine I'm walking with Timothy, and from afar, I see a bear. I've never seen a bear as I was hiking, but like, I see a bear. Like, what would be my, my natural instinct? Would I go like, wow, that's a bear. Like, Timothy, we saw that in the zoo. Let's see how close we can get. Maybe we can touch the, the bear and, and, and like, kind of go on our own way. No, I would never do that. The moment I see the bear, I'm like, okay, Timothy, it's done. Like, we're, we're, we're going back. Like, we're not messing around. Like, my ultimate goal is not passing the bear and seeing how close I can get to the bear without being hard. My ultimate goal is to go as far away from the bear. You know why? Because when I see a bear, I see danger. Why don't we have the same reaction when it comes to sin? Could it be that the reason why we are living on the edge and we're approaching sin in a very casual way is because we simply believe that sin is not a big deal. That's not that dangerous. We might fall, but we can just get back up again. And we don't recognize that sin is actually just sin, that it has nothing 
positive in our life, that it can destroy us, it can lead us astray. And so what God is calling us to do this morning is, is this. When you flee from unrighteousness, from worldliness, it simply means that you recognize that this world is not necessarily a safe place, that there are things that are coming after you, there are things that are tempting you, so flee from these things. But it's not just good enough to run away. If you run away, you have to run towards something. That's the second part of verse 11. It says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. So run away from godly, uh, worldliness, run to godliness and righteousness. That's what the Bible's telling us today. You know, so many people as Christians are known for what they do not do. I don't drink as a Christian. I don't sleep with someone that's not my wife as a Christian. I don't do this and that. And that's great, the things that you don't do. But if you are only known by the things that you don't do, then you are just living half of your life. Because as much as you're not doing these things, what the Bible tells us is pursue godliness. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In a way, it's saying that pursue Jesus with all that you have. Pursue Christ's likeness. Is your Christian life marked by the things that you don't do, or is it marked by the fruit that you actually produce in Jesus Christ? Are you just avoiding trouble, or are you actually leading people in a genuine way to the gospel? And so the Christian life calls us to stay aggressive, to avoid, to flee from sinfulness, from worldliness, rather to run towards godliness with all that we have, to pursue Christ and imitate his image. So remember to stay aggressive. So remember who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember to stay aggressive. And the last thing I wanted to share is this, stay focused. And by the way, these are things that, that coaches will often say to players, right? In the heat of the competition, hey, stay focused. Stay aggressive. Like, if you want to win, like, you, you got to pay attention to the details. And that's exactly what the Bible's telling us today. Stay focused. It says in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. The moment you follow Jesus Christ, actually, the moment you are born in this world, you enter into a fight. That in Ephesians 6, Paul talks about how our fight is not against flesh or blood, but we have this spiritual battle, ongoing battle that's going on in our life. There's a tug of war between godliness and and worldliness that this world is trying to lead us astray. This world is full of values and, and principles that do not align with the ways of God. We have a real enemy, by the way, that is actively working like a roaring lion, that his ultimate goal is to destroy our faith. He wants to wreck your marriage. He wants to mislead your children. He wants to destroy your friendships and your relationships. He wants to abolish your purity. He wants to attack your integrity on a daily basis. He wants you to to stay away from God and not see the beauty of the gospel. And in light of this, what Paul says to Timothy is this, fight the good fight of the faith. Understand that there's a fight that's going on. That you're not just walking through life, but there's actively a battle that you need to engage. You need to prepare. You need to wrestle with this. But also notice that it says, fight the good fight of the faith. In other words, don't just fight all the time and fight over little things, fighting over petty things. No, fight the good fight of the faith. What is the faith? The faith is talking about the content of our faith, the gospel, the sound doctrines, the teachings of of Christ. 
protect those things, fight for those things. And this is not a new idea. Paul talked about this before. And on top of this, he says in verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you hold in your hand eternal life. But notice that word take hold. It also appears when Jesus on the boat, he's, he, Peter jumps into the water. He's trying to walk with Jesus and, and Jesus it grabs Peter who's drowning. And, and that, whole, that, that word take hold it means the same thing where Jesus took hold of Peter's hand in the water. It also means to seize as well. When Paul was dragged out of the temple because um, people were trying to kill him, again, it's the same word. And so when the Bible tells us, take hold of the things that we have of eternal life, of the good confession that we made in Christ Jesus, most likely talking about our conversion, our baptism, the things that we came to know when we started our Christian life, the Bible tells us to take hold of those things. And I love the way that Paul is unpacking this because when it says fight the good fight, the verb that he uses is not just a one-time action uh, type of verb, but it's, it's a pre- uh, present imperative, meaning that it's an ongoing thing that you have to do. On a daily basis, fight. Engage in the battle. Fight. In other words, Paul is telling us, don't take time off. You don't, you don't get breaks. You know, your season is not over. Like, a lot of times, I think, after some time, like, maybe you've been to church for a couple of years, and you're like, I did it all, I, I've seen it all, it's, it's time for me to retire. No, the Bible tells us, like, God decides when you're going to retire. God decides when your time is up. Until then, you don't get times off, time off. Until then, you engage in the fight. Why? Because there is a real enemy that's out there who's actively trying to destroy your faith. And how can we take a day off? Satan does not take a day off. And just in case this is too overwhelming and too hard to grasp, this is how how Paul ends this section with an incredible doxology about Jesus. This is what he says in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Just notice two things there. He says, as I'm charging you, I'm charging you in the name of God, but in his presence. In other words, as you, are go- as you are going, God's presence is following you, that he is with you. When he sends you out, when he's sending you on this mission, he's not leaving you alone. He's going with you. Exactly what Jesus said in the Great Commission. But also know that of Christ Jesus, who is in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. Jesus himself lived this life. He demonstrated that it is possible to live a life of winning. And the way that you do it is you stay focused, that you stay engaged, you stay active, you stay aggressive. And it says in verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, who is our Savior, who is also our King, he's going to return, and that's when this fight is going to be done. But in the meantime, in verse 15, he who is the blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So the reason why you and I can walk in confidence in this winning way is it's not necessarily because we have all the gadgets and the tools and the ability to live this life of, of a godly life, but the Bible says us it's because who sends us, the one who 
who gives us this charge, Jesus, that he is incredible. He is the one who rules all things. He's the one who's going to return for his bride. And his return is not going to be too late. It's not going to be too early. It's going to be at the proper time. He can do this because he knows all things, that he has all the wisdom in the world, and, and he's completely sovereign, meaning he's in complete control of all things. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and, and this is the one that we serve. So as his church, we can remain faithful to this calling, that he is eternal, he is immortal, that he is so holy that he's unapproachable, and yet he deserves all the honor and eternal dominion. If we serve a Lord like this, how can we live a mediocre life as a Christian? How can we simply live to not lose? Jesus is going to return in victory, and he says, you too live to win the life. Live, not just an average husband or wife. Live, not just an average parent or a child. If you're a single adult, don't be an average single adult. Be a godly single adult. Don't just be an average employer or employee, a student or a teacher. Stay aggressive, stay focused. My hope is that I won't be an average pastor, and it's not because I think I'm incredibly talented. I think what the church is lacking is not gifted leaders, it's godly leaders. And so this is the incredible calling that's placed on my life and also on your life. I pray that Shining Star would not just be an average church. Like, as we are wrapping First Timothy, as we have seen all that, that the Lord requires of us when it comes to the gospel and how to build a gospel-centered church, this is a high calling. When God says, hey, fight the good fight, defend the faith, when he talks about how we should make worship a priority, how we should worship with, with dignity, with with modesty, that we should care about the things of God, even if that means that it's uncomfortable for us, that we should embrace biblical leadership, even when it's not convenient. No, we, we trust God's design. We honor one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as a family. We, we recognize that there's possibility of false teaching, and we pursue godliness together with one mind. And as we do this, what Timothy is being told and what we're being told is this. We might be able to do this for a month or two, but the calling that God is placing on our church and our lives is this. We do this until Jesus returns. We stay aggressive. We stay focused. Why? Because we are called by the higher one, that he is the one who empowers us, gives us authority. He actually calls us men and women of God, and it is our privilege to be able to live as his people, as his church. So I'm excited for this next season, how God is going to lead us. But remember, we're not just going to be average. We're going to pursue God with all that we have. Amen? Let's pray.